If you have your Bible this morning, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I never apologize for scripture, but I will tell you right now, I'm about to make somebody here unhappy. Maybe several some, somebodies. So if you would like to send a, uh, a, an email, my email address is Gary. Okay, maybe not. I'm talking about some very practical advice, real hope that we find in the scriptures, real hope. Practical advice can be very, very valuable. In fact, it's invaluable. Uh, I, I ran across this and some, some people are getting ready to go back to school. David Keth, uh, he is a professor at Bakersfield, uh, in, in a college there, in, in, uh, Bakersfield College. He has written some practical advice for freshmen coming into college. And, and uh, there are actually 12, I won't read all of them, but I love number one, attendance. You need to make every effort to attend class. That's the basic thing for freshmen. And arrive on time. If you do arrive late, it is usually best to quietly enter the room, find a seat, and sit down. If your professor is already lecturing when you arrive late, do not approach him or her and announce, I'm here now. Number 12 is turn your cell phone off unless you are a medical doctor on call. I like that. It's practical advice on going to college. And, and he ends this whole thing and he says, in high school, the, here's the difference is high school versus college. In high school, you have to enroll by law. You must attend classes or someone will come look for you. you, have, you you're given many short assignments. Information is carefully spooned out. And most everyone passes kind of sort of generally. In college, it's a privilege to attend. You've chosen to be here. Let's face it, somebody's paying for this. Attendance is your choice. The consequences due to the lack of your attendance are your responsibility. Assignments are fewer, but they're more demanding. Effective note-taking skills, successful study strategies are your responsibility. You need to learn how to study. And then the last thing is, if you don't do the work, you will fail and he notes, especially in my class. I like that. I like this guy. Practical information. And a lot of people come to church and they think, well, the Bible's not really that practical. I mean, you guys talk about these big ideas, but you don't have practical ideas. And you're going to find today that that's just absolutely not the truth. The Bible is, is very, very practical. The, the opposite is true of what you normally think. There's advice on jobs. There's advice on money. In fact, Jesus speaks more about money than he does about heaven. And we're going to have that Financial Peace University that's coming up in September. And, and I, I had somebody come to me, well, my finances aren't a mess, so I don't need to go to that. I got news for you. Your finances don't have to be in a mess. It's a great class on what the Bible says about money. It's a very practical thing. The Bible talks about parenting. It talks about relationships. It talks about marriages. And in fact, on one of the best sections on marriage, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, it, it says this. It starts the whole discussion on marriage with a very practical suggestion. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Usually that's tacked on to another section, but that's the preface for every marriage advice you should give. First of all, submit to the other person. First of all, humble yourself to the other person. First of all, commit yourself totally, 100% to that other person. Here's where we're going with this. The Lord provides incredible hope, real hope, for our lives by giving us practical advice 
that's, that flows from the grace that we find in him, especially and specifically in our relationships. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. As we're going chapter by chapter, that's one of the benefits. You get to touch on subjects that may or may not make people happy, but that's okay. And it starts out with practical, practical advice for spouses. Now, if you don't have a spouse right now, don't tune me out, okay? Because this advice is good for a lot of relationships, but specifically, uh, it's talking about spouses. And let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. It says, Now for the matters you wrote about. Now again, Paul is writing to a church that is in turmoil. It's in disarray. They have had some letters back and forth. Obviously, they've written him a letter. And he's going back to something they referenced. Now for the matters you wrote about... And then I think the next sentence is he's quoting what they said. This is not Paul's philosophy. It is good for a man not to marry. Now he gives it his advice. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife. And each woman her own husband. Again, I have to stop here for just a second. Do you understand how radical this is? He treats the woman as an equal. He treats, he, he's going to give advice to men and to women in the biblical times when Paul is writing, this is just unheard of. Look at verse 3. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now then he says something that seems strange, and it's, this has probably been taken out of context more than almost anything else in 1 Corinthians. Verse 6, I say this as a concession, not as a command. What in the world is Paul talking about? Does Paul hate marriage? No, just the opposite. Paul very strongly supports marriage. And I think what he's telling us, two things. Number one, love like Christ loves. If you want to know Paul's advice, we are to love like Christ loves. That's where he starts with this. And part of that loving relationship is to understand that that God is not against marriage. God created Adam and Eve. I'm a very simple person. The Bible says in Genesis that God created the heavens and the earth. So guess what I believe? I believe that God created the heavens and the earth. It says in Genesis that he created the earth in six days. Guess what I believe? God created the earth in six days. And you say, well, pastor, what about evolution? Well, one of these days, the scientists are going to figure out more of why it's wrong. But what we have is what God said, and you can never go wrong when you follow what God said. And a part of that creation was an original man and an original woman, Adam and Eve. He saw that it was not good for Adam to be alone. He created Eve. She came alongside him. They were helpers. They were partners from the very beginning. God instituted, he created marriage. He created man and woman. Paul knows all of that. In 1 Timothy 4.3, he lists forbidding to marry as a sign of a false prophet or false teacher. Uh, Paul, again, uh, we, we've already talked about this, that that Paul knows the Old Testament and he knows all of the times that, that a woman was so important to come alongside a man. And again, Genesis chapter 2, 18 says it was not good for Adam to be alone. Do you understand the, the wording there? This was before there were children. This is before the man could potentially be alone for a weekend with his children. It was not good for man to be alone. This was before man had power tools. It's not good for man to be alone. 
This is before men had the ability to get themselves in so many other pickles without a woman, and God still said it's not good for a man to be alone. Obviously, there was a problem, and he brought Eve to be a part of it. That was supposed to be humor. You can think about it. Paul also used marriage as an analogy of Christ in the church. We already saw a little bit of that in Ephesians chapter 5. Look at Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Sacrificially, selflessly, we are to love the, 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 the partner that God has given us. But he was addressing a group within the church in Corinth that had a specific problem because these guys were super spiritual. You know, you, you know the Christians, they walk around, they have a big S on their front or on their back. They're the super Christians. And they thought, well, you know, since I'm a Christian and I'm such a spiritual Christian, probably the sexual relationship, that must not be something that God is pleased with. And so even though they're married, they decided that they were going to quit having a sexual relationship because that might somehow dirty their relationship with God. And, and Paul says, you guys wrote that it's, it's better for a man not to touch a woman, not to, to marry a woman. Literally, it's saying not to touch her. And he said, that's not what this is all about. That's crazy. What are you thinking? And he's addressing a specific problem. Now, let me be absolutely clear. And this is where some of you may not like this, but this is what the Bible says. God created us male and female, and he created us to enjoy this gift called sex. And the sexual relationship that God gave is supposed to be only one place between a man and a woman who are married together. That's the only time. But within marriage, God created this, and he said it was very good. He said that man was good, was very good, woman was very good, and he created us to enjoy that. Now, here's the problem. And you say, well, Pastor, I'm just not comfortable talking about this on a Sunday morning. Well, I got news for you. The world is talking about it every other hour. We better be talking about it here. We need to teach our young people that it's not okay to have sex outside of marriage. We need to teach our married couples it's not okay to have that relationship when you're already in a marriage. We need to teach what the Bible says about this as well as every other subject because it's, it's so practical for us. There are repeated studies that have been done today. The most exciting, meaningful, lasting sexual relationships are in a monogamous, heterosexual man and woman marriage. That's what the studies say. Guess what? They finally found out that God was right. Well, he was right all the time. We just didn't know that. And, and the studies are telling us that. If you've got your Bible already open to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 7, go over to, verse, uh, to chapter 13. This is read a lot of, at weddings, but this is all about God's love. How are we to love as Christ loved? Look at verse 4. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. Love is not rude. It is not self-seeking, selfish. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Whoa, for marriages, you don't get to keep a record of how many times he blew it, she blew it. Verse 6, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. Always perseveres. Love never fails. It, it, when, when Paul is writing that and he's describing how God loves, God loves in such a way that he loves, he cares more about the other person no matter what it costs him. He loves so much that it, it changes forever the way we look at love. It's not selfish, but selfless. 
The two equals, two partners coming together in a loving relationship. Love like Christ loves. The, the second one is serve together. It says, I write this as a, not a command, but a concession. What's the concession? The concession is that there may be a time when you're intensely praying together that you do draw away. There may be some circumstances that as a spou- uh, two spouses together, there may be a time that you decide maybe for a, a physical ailment, maybe for something else, but there may be a time when you do need to draw away and not have that sexual relationship. That's the concession. Marriage is not the concession. The drawing apart is the concession. And, and he says, otherwise, this is the way God created us, to take a break from that sexual intimacy under special circumstances. But notice what the special circumstances he mentions. It's, it's urgent prayer. There's this prayer thing that comes apart. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says that we are to pray without ceasing, but there are also times when you're just burdened down. We have our sixth grandchild coming. We're, we're excited about that. Uh, he's to be born in Nashville on uh, the, the 19th of August, and we're really excited about that. And the minute that I heard that our, that our uh, son and daughter-in-law were having a baby, I started praying for the baby and praying for the baby's spouse. You say, what? I started doing that when every one of our grandchildren were born. I decided that I wanted to pray for them and pray for the person that they would someday meet in God's grace, in God's time, that they would find another person to come together that would be the perfect match for them. And I've, be- and I've been praying that for each one of our, our grandchildren. I started almost 15 years ago with Ashley. I didn't do that with our children, and I decided I would do that with our grandchildren. Because we can pray about something that so burdens our heart that you can pray consistently. But then there are those special times. Paul could not fathom that there would be a couple that both knew Jesus Christ that would not want to serve in that way, to pray together. My dad used to say, those who pray together stay together. Some of the sweetest times that, that we get to have, Kathy and I, are when, when we, we pray for, with meals all the time, but there are other times that when we pray, the prayer changes, and it's just those sweet times when we know that God has really laid something on both of our hearts. There's some powerful examples of what happens when, when people begin to serve together, whether it's in prayer or something else. Uh, in Romans chapter 16, Paul mentions greet Priscilla and Aquila. This, this couple, Priscilla was this woman who was actually an incredible Bible teacher, and, and Priscilla and her husband became instrumental in the church. He says, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, they risked their lives for me. I love to see couples. I love to see Greg and Diane, and I love to see couples who have come alongside and they serve alongside each other. James Dobson and his wife Shirley have been serving side by side. He thought he was going to be a clinical uh, psychologist, but the Lord took him a different direction. They've served side by side for 53 years. Forty years ago, I was a, I was a freshman at, at, a, at a Bible college, and I met this girl with long, beautiful brown hair, and we were singing on a team, and we were serving side by side, and she came, became my best friend, and when she didn't know better, she became my wife. And Kathy and I have served side by side for 40 years, and, and I love when I'm standing here singing, and she's playing the piano, and we're singing together, and we're serving together. I love that. 
I love that this last week I, I looked up and we were doing the communion and Smokey and Betty Cox and, and we had Tom and Karen Marker and Wayne and Cheryl Riley and they, they were all getting the communion ready. And I love to see couples doing that. And, and I love when I come in sometimes in, in the auditorium and, and, I, and I see Don and Alton Ale and they're filling all the backs of the chairs with the cards that we need so desperately. I love that, that at the men's breakfast over a week ago, Steve and Jackie are always there, and I looked up, and there's Rich and this, and Carrie's there at the men's breakfast, and I said, Carrie, what you doing? She said, well, I knew you were a person short, and I just wanted to come, and she was washing dishes by Rich. You understand what that means to, to understand that you can serve the Lord in all of these different ways and so many more. There's so many other couples that are such an integral part of this, and if you're missing out on that, the practical advice for spouses is serve together. Here's a practical advice for some singles. Look at the next few verses. Practical advice for singles, not only spouses, but singles. Verse 7, I wish that all men were as I am. Paul was not, a, was not married. Paul was a single guy. But each man has his own gift from God. Charisma, charis, from the word grace. He, he says, I have this grace gift, and his gift was this celibacy, this singleness. One has this gift, another has that. So some people have the gift of singleness, some, something else. Look in verse 8. Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, all single groups there, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, really a bad translation, really the, the better sense is if they're struggling to remain pure, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Here's some really practical advice for singles. Number one, maximize your unique opportunity. Maximize your unique opportunity. God calls some people into singleness, and, and Paul says it's a gift because he has a, a, a unique opportunity. Here's the problem that I have. A lot of churches today almost make singles feel like they're second-class citizens. A lot of churches have kind of relegated them to the, oh, they're not married yet status. Oh, we don't have really a class for you. Oh, we don't really know what to do with you. And Paul says, wait a second, we shouldn't do that. In no way should we do that. In fact, just the opposite, we should recognize that they have a flexibility in their schedule. They have a, a unique focus that they can have in their service for the Lord and in their discipleship. And Paul's not claiming to be superiorly, uh, spiritually superior. He's just saying there's some practical advantages. Think about this. In, in the book of Acts, there's a story of Philip. Philip is called by the Lord to go, and it says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that, leads, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. There he's going to meet, meet an Ethiopian. And Philip is tasked to do that. He's asked to, to go out. He's given this task. And the Lord says, I want you to go to this road. Philip later will marry. Later it tells us in Acts that, that Philip ends up in, in Caesarea Philippi, uh, Caesarea Maritime, or in that area. And he has daughters that are evangelists, which would really blow a lot of people's minds. But anyway, he, later Philip is married and he has this family. But right now he's single. And the Lord says, I can grab him and I can move him where I want him right now. Now, how many of you have, have had children in your life? You've had children. Raise your hand if you've ever had a child, okay? Every, okay. Some of you are not sure. If you have to look at your spouse, it's a bad thing, okay? If you've had a child and you, once you, you know, before you had children and you went to the store 
you have this flexibility. And the first time that you get home with those, th that child and, they, and you say, let's go to the grocery store, and then all of a sudden you have a stroller, and then you have a baby seat, and then you have a diaper bag, and then you have the wipes, and then you have the bottles, and you have, you know what I'm talking about? You have moved easier than it is just to take a child to the grocery store. You have all of this stuff. And by the time you get to the car, you're so tired, you don't want to go to the grocery store. I've had husbands say, I hate to go to the grocery store, but I'd rather go by myself than have to get the kid to go with us. You understand, there is a flexibility, there's a, there's a sim simplicity there. And the Lord says, do you understand, maybe God has given you that gift right now for you to do something special. There's a, there's a website called crosswalk.com. Crosswalk.com. And it has some great articles for Christian singles. And I, and I love the fact that more and more ministries are trying to reach out. And it's something that I have a heart for here. So some practical advice. Maximize your unique opportunity. The, the second one, though, is very clear. Maintain your purity. Practical advice. Maintain your purity. If you're struggling with this thing of sexuality and, and, and sexual relationship, if, if, you're, if you're really struggling with that purity, it's better to marry. It's better to go ahead and find that partner than to jump from one bed to another. This is very practical advice. You see, in our society, somehow we've, we've degraded what God gave us to the point that we think that, that a sexual relationship is just about bodies, and it's not. We looked at this before. The Lord says that, that, that really it's much more than the intersection of bodies. It's really all about your souls touching. The Lord says, I made this part of the relationship the most intimate act that you can have as a couple, not for some wild, weird thing. It's so that you can know that person in a way you could never know them. And, and we've missed that. Now, that's not a very popular stance today, the whole thing of if you're not married to remain celibate, to, if you're not married to, to remain chaste and to be pure. I mean, we've had some people, A.C. Green, when he announced that uh, as a basketball player, boy, there were people that jumped all over him. I was at a concert many years ago, and there was a, a group called Point of, of Grace, and when the point of grace stood up and they said, four women, they said, we've decided that we've taken this vow and we want to remain virgins until our marriage. I, I, you know, I thought it was great. We actually had somebody from the church complain that they shouldn't be talking like that, talking dirty during a concert. And I thought, wow. And of course, our favorite subject, Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow has talked about wanting to remain a virgin and the press has just given him fits about this. This Christian young man playing in the NFL, and, you know, he may not be the best quarterback. I don't even care. I love the fact that he loves Jesus Christ, and I love the fact that he won't shut up about what his faith is all about. There was, a, there was an article this week, Bleacher Report. Here's the title. 15 Reasons Tim Tebow is the Worst Thing That Ever Happened in All of Sports. Fifteen reasons why Tim Tebow is the worst thing that ever happened in all of sports. Really? We have an NFL player that's been indicted for murder. We have guys on steroids. We have guys taking all kinds of drugs. We have guys who've been arrested for assault. And Tim Tebow, because he wants to remain a virgin, is the worst thing that's ever happened in football? Give me a break. Maybe if we had more Christian examples that stood up and said, we can be a Christian and we can be pure until our marriage, maybe it wouldn't be such, such an exceptional thing. It's tough. 
I'm not saying it's not. And Paul, again, gives this very practical advice. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, it says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And look at this last, this last couple of lines. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Job, in his book, when, he's, when the, the friends come to him and said, Surely you have failed the Lord some way. He says, You know what? Even when I see a beautiful woman, I bounce my eyes so I don't look at her to lust. The Bible is full of, of practical ideas to take every thought captive, to make sure that our eyes are where they need to be and our thoughts are what, what they need to be. And the Lord says, I, I, I want you to understand what you can do as a single. And here's the last one, practical advice about divorce. Practical advice about divorce. Look at, uh, at verses 10 through 16. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. Now again, he, at first he said, this is the Lord. Then he's coming back and saying, well, this is my opinion. This is my interpretation of this. Of course, Paul is an apostle. Paul has a lot of weight, a big opinion. But look what he says. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Verse 13. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Again, notice, husband and wife, each dealt with separately. Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified or set apart through his wife. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified, set apart through her, unbelieving, uh, through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Same word, they are set apart. Verse 15, but if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? The word save there... Uh, in that, this sense, he's saying lead them to Jesus Christ, win them to Christ. Not that you do the saving, Christ saves. But in that sense, we are leading them to Christ. What's the practical advice? What's the practical advice about divorce? This is going to blow you away. Number one, love the person you married. Love the person you married. You say, well, that doesn't address divorce at all. Oh, yes, it does. That's the, that's the starting point. What's a Christian to do when married to an unbeliever? Love them. What's a Christian to do when you're in a marriage that's troubled? Love them. Love them. Love the person you married. You see, we immediately jump to the, the things like in, in Malachi 2.16 where God says, I hate divorce, says the Lord God Almighty, the Lord God of Israel. But need to be careful about that because in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, there are six other things that God says that he hates, and among them is lying and stirring up division. You ever told a little fib? You ever kind of stirred some trouble up? The Lord hates that just like he hates divorce. And that's the problem that I see sometimes because we know what God's original design is. And let me say it one more time. God's original design is marriage. One man, one woman, staying together for a life. That is God's original design. That is maximum happiness. That is the best thing that you can possibly do. 
But God also knows that we fell. God also knows that we are sinners by nature. God's original design came from Genesis. Look at it one more time. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. You know how we know this was not about Adam? Adam didn't have a father and mother. He is setting a principle. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. That's God's design. The problem I have is that many Christians have made divorce the unpardonable sin. Many Christians have treated divorce like if you're divorced, oh, God can never use you again. If you're divorced, God has this special place in hell for you. And that's not what the Bible teaches. God's design is for you to stay married, to stay married, and to love the person that you marry. There are other believers, you have this one group, oh, divorce is the, the only unpardonable sin. Then you have this other group that are looking for loopholes so they can divorce the one that they've got so they can find one that's better. And you have Christians. You know what breaks my heart? In the Bible Belt, where there are more churches than anywhere else in the U.S., the Christians are divorcing at a higher rate than the non-Christians. Something is wrong with that. Something is wrong, and we need to get back to what the Bible says. Biblical solution is still that you love the person that you marry. What's interesting to me is the Bible never says to marry the person that you fall in love with. The Bible never says, go out and find that person, and when you go, woo, she is a catch. Wow, he is, wow, look at him. Oh, he looks so good. That's the guy. When you find him, you marry him, and everything will be good. That's not what the Bible says. And in fact, in most places in the Bible, they didn't even know the person until they were engaged to them. There's an interesting contrast. Their wedding night, sometimes they were meeting them for the first time. Interesting. But the Lord says, love them. Now let me say this. I'm going to be very frank. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, the Lord does, when he's talking about marriage, says that there is an exception for adultery. But mark my words, it is not a mandate for divorce. The Lord, when, the Lord Jesus, when he was speaking to the disciples and he talked about marriage and talked about it in the highest terms, said, unless, except for adultery. But he doesn't say that just because adultery enters your marriage that you must divorce that person. In fact, just the opposite. If you see David and, and other examples in the Bible, when they humbled themselves, God forgave them and God did not necessarily re- ask them or intend for them or, or like the fact that they would remove themselves from that marriage. Here we see that Paul says that if your unbelieving husband or wife abandons you. Folks, let me say this so that I'm perfectly clear. The Bible never expects a woman who's being beaten. A Bible never, the Bible never expects a woman who's being abused to stay in that relationship. At least separate. At least get help. At least get counseling. That is not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that that's not the the rule. That is the exception to the rule. Most times, most marriages that dissolve today, it's a matter of preferences rather than anything else. And it's a matter of not putting Christ first in your life. Love the person you marry. Here's a second practical advice. Let grace heal your fallenness. Let grace heal your fallenness. I was told I created a new word with fallenness. That's just an abuse of of pastoral uh, uh, 
uh, ability sometimes. If you write it up on a, on a uh, big screen, people believe it's true. But have you fallen? Grace covers it. Grace covers it. How many sins does God forgive when you're saved? Oh, that was weak. How many sins does God forgive? Past, present, future? How many sins does God forgive when he forgives? When you come to Jesus Christ and you're accepted into the family, he forgives all of your sins, the past, the present, and everything you're going to do in the future. Now, should we sin knowing that grace is going to cover it? Romans 6, chapter 1, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 says, absolutely, anathema, may it never be. That's, that it, it's the strongest language that Paul can use. If he could use a curse, he would do it. And he says, listen, this cannot ever happen. That's not what grace is all about. You don't come saying, well, it's all covered anyway. That's not what you do. You do everything within your power to stay married. But if you fail, if you fall, God forgives David, a man after God's own heart, was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He should have been out with his army, and he's on the top of a roof, and he's looking at this woman, and he lusts after her. And it's not something, it's not like, oh, I just saw her, and and I motioned over. He sends a servant. He finds out who it is. He sends a servant, and, and she comes, and she's pregnant. And when he finds out, he brings her husband home. He eventually has her husband murdered. David, a man after God's own heart, falls to this. Folks, don't tell me it can't happen to you. It can happen to any of us. And the Lord says, you need to do everything you can. David should not have been at the wrong place. He should have been in the right place. He should have had accountability. And those servants should have said, David, don't do this. But he did. And Uriah died in Bathsheba. He's pregnant and he takes her as his wife. Finally, Nathan shows up and God forgave. Look at what it says in 2 Samuel chapter 12. When, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, you damaged goods forever. You will never, ever be used by God. That's not what he says. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. Folks, we just don't get this. We don't understand what God can do through grace and through forgiveness. The Lord took away David's sin to a cross. And as the spikes went in his wrist and as the spikes went in his feet, as Jesus stretched out his arm, David's sin was nailed to the Savior. And your sin and my sin. And every failure we've ever had, whether it's in a relationship, whether it's lying, whether it's causing trouble in some other way, every sin that we've ever had, every wrong thought we've ever had, everything that we've done, took Jesus to the cross. The Lord has taken away your sin. And David paid greatly for that. That baby that was born died. Eventually another child is born of Bathsheba, and and his name is Solomon, and he becomes the king. Does God use those? Well, look at Jesus and look at the lineage of Christ. You have Tamar who who acted like a prostitute and the Lord used her. And you have Rahab who didn't have to act like one. She was a prostitute and God used her in the lineage. And you have have Bathsheba who gave birth to Solomon and she's in the lineage of, of Christ. God is always about taking those who are broken and making something from them. And somewhere along the line in the church, we we said, oh, this is one group of people God can't use anymore, and that's wrong. It's wrong. 
Last week I had an illustration. As I closed, I, I said that it was Philip Keller. I was just teasing. It was really Philip Yancey. I misspoke. Philip Yancey wrote a book, um, you know, What is God Worth? It's basically the, the title of the book. And I'll close with this story, true story. Philip Yancey was called to go to Asia. Uh, we have our missionaries working over in India, and they could probably tell you a lot about this. And he found that there's one million children ages 10 to 13, children ages 10 to 13, sold into prostitution every year. One million. We're not talking about girls that are teenagers. We're talking preteens, 10 to 12, 13 years old. Girls and boys sold into prostitution. And he was called to this, what they like to call themselves the professional sex workers. It was prostitutes and pimps that were there. And they were organizations that are trying to deal with Christians, people who've come out of that lifestyle, who are going back and trying to get this stopped. And they're, and they're, doing, they're trying to buy back the people. They're trying to do anything they possibly can to, to make these children not be at risk anymore. And, and they're, just, they're failing miserably because it's just this onslaught of this evil that's just pouring a, around the world. And Philip Yancey is called because he'd written a book, What's So Amazing About Grace? And he was supposed to address this group in 2008. And, and there was this woman, he, he changed her name, he called her Sandra. She's from Australia. She was a, a, a very high-class prostitute for a while, and then she got into drugs like all of them do and, and, and fell. And, and after six months, it, it was the first, first six months she said it was exciting. After that, it was this horrible, horrible lifestyle. And she finally got pulled out of it when she realized that when Jesus Christ went to the cross, those nails and the cross were for her. And you say, what in the world does that have to do with this? There's a sin that is infecting our world. And as, Paul, as, as uh, Philip Yancey was speaking to this group, one of the things that one of the leaders had gotten up to say is that we need to kill all the desire in all of the people. If we can just kill the sexual desire, if we can somehow take away the sexual desire, that this thing will go away. And Philip Yancey got up and he says, no, just the opposite. God made us with pure desires. We don't need to kill it. We need to turn it back to what God originally intended. One man, one woman, in love forever. We have the recipe, we have the prescription for this evil, and it's found in God's Word, and it's very practical. It's Christians loving Christians, Christians loving non-Christians, Christians showing what marriage was originally designed to be. And God said, I will begin to change the world when you become the example that God has called us to be. Let's pray. Folks, I know that this is a drastically different message than what we normally hear. And some of you are going to go away saying, wow, I wish he hadn't said that. But our world needs to hear it. And we're faced with it every day whether we acknowledge it or not. My call to you is this. No matter what the sin, sexual sin, non-sexual, God offers the only remedy at the cross. And he is faithful, and he's just, and he's forgiving, and he offers you cleansing. You can come as we sing this song and sit on the chair. You can come and kneel, but the Lord wants to heal.
Father, we love you. And there will be some here today, Father, that whose hearts are broken and some whose hearts are stirred up and angry. But Father, may we understand that you gave us pure desires to love you, to love others, to love you in such a way that, that the way that you created us is restored even in part right now until we wait to the fulfillment of all the restoration that you bring to us. So begin to, to restore those things that are broken within us right now. Restore to us the joy of the life that you created. Father, for those that, that maybe have never acknowledged that the divorce that they went through was truly a failure on their part, may they understand that you've already forgiven it. But may they turn to you and, and pour out any anger and frustration and fear. May they find new peace and new grace and new love that you designed for them. Father, for some that maybe have been tempted this week and looked at things they shouldn't have, forgive them. May you change their heart. May they never want to do with second-rate stuff when you've created us to find your love in a pure form through you, through that spouse you give us. Father, there may be some that are struggling in ways that I can't even imagine today. May you speak to the need that they have in their heart even now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.